0: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tom Zimmerman and J. Eric Linksweiler.
1: Everybody know when L.A.'s birthday is? No. September, September the 4th. Ooh, Go L.A. Good. Fair so, time. celebrate. Make a cake. So, we're here, of course, to talk about Spectacular Illumination, which is a book about historic la neon this thing got in gear very slowly uh, about 12 years ago when I went to the museum of neon art and was talking to Kim koga who's the director and when I was doing the the neon noir thing and she said you know we ought to ought to do some kind of book about historic la neon I said yeah, well and thanks to, to patty and Scott and good old angel city press here it is at long last for everyone to love and admire one hopes so the way things are starting out uh, do we believe
0: yeah, I want to actually say something too. Um, the book itself was pulled from three really good private collections. Uh, primarily, it came from Tom's collection. A lot of that photography is his vintage photography that you have sought out from different dealers, vendors gift shops etc eBay Uh, and then there's my collection which has a whole bunch of wonderful neon photos in it as well and then the third collection is sitting right over there in that wonderful tie It's Nathan Marsak Uh, Nathan provided a lot of images for this book too and I'm so glad to see you because if it weren't for Nathan's collection we wouldn't have as much vintage color in the book as we have so I can't wait to share a few with you Tom focused a lot on a few featured photographers we've got three in particular that Tom really enjoyed
1: Well, to start off, are we Mm -hmm. going to? Yeah, to start off with uh, J. Howard Mott, which is a name everyone that's even vaguely interested in photography or architecture should know. There were three guys, one guy, well, one guy in New York, two guys in Chicago, and Mott in Los Angeles in the early 1920s that became the first exclusively um, architectural photographers. Before that, they just went to various commercial houses to, to, to hire them to go take pictures of the buildings. These three guys, all they did was architectural photography, and Mott was just a stone genius. And lucky for all of us, His stuff is all up in the state library in Sacramento. Now, this is just an ultimate example. It wasn't enough for Mott just to take pictures of the construction, to take pictures of the finished product. He would go to take pictures of whatever the lighting scheme is. And then when they found out that the building he had just covered, uh, the Los Angeles Theater, was having its grand opening. Well, of course, Mott went down there to cover that as well. And this is just the ultimate picture of Broadway at the height of of the, the neon ascendancy, you might say. And the great streets in Los Angeles for Neon were Broadway, uh, Hollywood Boulevard, and Neon Central, Vine Street, between Hollywood and Sunset, which was just this continuing collection of massive roof signs and fascia signs, and just it went on and on and on, and kept changing as the buildings changed. So there's a whole section about Vine Street in the book. So... Now, these are perfect examples. Again, he, ju- he had to take everything, Mott. He couldn't help himself. So here you have a fairly small little shop up on Hollywood Boulevard, and then you have the um, Eastern Columbia down on Broadway, when it opened with the great neon clock and the Eastern and Colombian huge neon letters at the top of the thing. If you're familiar with the building, it's aquamarine in color. If you remember the great Richfield building, it was black and gold, being as how it's a, uh, an oil company's building. Well, this is it's all terracotta. It's this magnificent terracotta in aquamarine. And it's just one of the great buildings in the city. Thank God it's still there. It's now an apartment house with a big old pool right on top of the thing. It's one of the great changed buildings in all of downtown. Highly recommend if you're ever down there wandering about in the thing as much as you can because, of course, it's private residence, so it's a little harder than what it used to be. But anyway, this is typical. And the other deal, just another quick little thing about uh, Hollywood Boulevard, Hollywood Boulevard, everybody thinks of Wilshire as being the big challenge in the 1920s to the ascendancy of downtown. Well, the same thing was happening on Hollywood Boulevard. All of these wonderful clothing shops and so on that had originally just been in downtown, primarily on Broadway and 7th Street, were now opening up in the Hollywood Boulevard. And it became one of the key shopping streets oh, for about 30 years or so, and then you know fell off the cliff. But for that time in the 20s and 30s especially there were just wonderful little shops and this Nettleson shop's a great great example. Another guy who was again with, with, with Mott he didn't concentrate on neon. He was an architectural photographer but obviously neon fascinated him because it made the building look so interesting at night other than just being some dark thing. Uh, Will Connell was a Um, initially a fine art photographer. He becomes a commercial photographer. He eventually starts the photo program Uh, at Art Center over in Pasadena. So he had a varied career, very interesting career. And in 1929, there was a nice rain, and he went downtown with his camera to capture the neon lights shining on the wet streets. And really, what is better than that? So these things are just astounding, not only as things of their time, but just these fantastic images with the water. You see the pig and whistle there? you know, weirdest named restaurant practically in the history of the world, but it was a whole chain. They're all over the place. There is one that reopened. Well, reopened is probably the wrong word, but anyway, right next to the Egyptian theater, which there was a pig and whistle there in the 1920s and 30s. So they're kind of reusing the space and calling it the same thing. Well, here you have one on... uh, that would be 6th Street. Sixth. And then the Paramount Theater there on the left, originally the Metropolitan, that was our boy Sid Gromman's first theater here in good old Los Angeles and it was the largest theater in the city it sat over 4000 people and the building's totally gone it's, it's some jewelry thing now but but so that's one of the great it recreates and you can see the traffic so you know <laughs> traffic in LA is nothing particularly new sadly and this, I, this is one of my favorite pictures ever of the good old Warner Brothers, again, another jewelry store now, uh, but of the Warner Brothers at its very height. And prior to that, of course, it had been the Pantages, where Alexander Pantages had his, uh, his offices. Uh, and then the Warner Brothers took it over when Pantages had all his problems. So that's a perfect example. And then the third photographer is John Swope. And like Connell and Mott... And virtually 95% of people in Los Angeles in the 1920s and 30s, they were from someplace else. In the case of Connell and and Mott, they came from the Midwest, like most of Los Angeles. You've heard the thing about L.A. being the seacoast of Dubuque. And the biggest event in Los Angeles in the 1920s and 30s was the Iowa State Picnic, which was held at Bixby Park down in Long Beach. Half of Iowa had moved out here. Well, Swope was the one different guy. He was from upstate New York. And his father... Was the CEO or whatever they used to call them in those days of General Electric, so he came from some wealth. <laughs> did uh, did our boy swope, and one of those great things that everybody can be envious of. When he turned 25, you know he suddenly started making all this money just because he was 25. <laughs> so I love him, but he decided. Uh, he'd, he'd run a couple of New Deal programs. It was no slug. Uh, he'd run some New Deal programs. He came out here because he was going on a yacht race between Los Angeles and um, Hawaii. And somewhere in the middle of that race, he decided he wanted to be a photographer. So that's what he became. And he, was, he worked for Life magazine. Uh, he was in uh, the, the Navy during the war and was in the... Um, uh, what's the fellow's name? Anyway, he was a major photographer in the Navy during the war, uh, a particular photo unit that went all over the place, and he covered all of the uh, POWs, American POWs being. Uh, let go finally by the Japanese. You know what was left of these poor guys. Uh, And actually that is now, that group of photos is in Japan. It was bought by the Japanese government uh, a few years ago. His son runs his archive. But anyway, all of these guys were new to LA. And just like my dad who came here in 1933 from North Dakota, and my father had never laid eyes on a neon sign in his life. Had no, He was from a farm, no less, in southwestern North Dakota. Which, If you've ever been in southwestern North Dakota, there ain't a lot of neon. <laughs> ain't a lot of nothing but cows. But anyway, all these guys were utterly fascinated by these neon lights. They were amazing. And it just fit L.A. like a glove, the way the city was at that time. You know, the whole city was Hollywood. That's kind of how people saw it. And these neon signs just fit in with the zeitgeist perfectly because it lit everything up. And you had those three main streets, Broadway, uh, Vine Street, and Hollywood Boulevard. But you also had these absolutely endless commercial strips along Western, along Vermont, And virtually every tiny little building had some kind of neon sign. If they were selling housewares, if they were a liquor store, if they were a restaurant, they had some kind of neon sign hanging on the side of the building. And that's really L.A.'s main contribution to the sort of history of neon, just the fantastic proliferation of it. They were all over the place. And if you see the book... One of the great pictures, because it's so politically incorrect, it was, you know, like Venetian blinds. That's what they sold. And they had a guy on top. They called it the blind man. And it's a guy with, you know, dark glasses and a cane <laughs> <laughs> that, that lit up in different ways, and it looked like the guy was walking. But it's, it's an amazing thing. It's, it's a thing of its time, obviously. Uh, and it was on 8th Street, uh, like, oh, 8 or 10 blocks out of downtown. So anyway, the book is full of stuff like that. It's full of the big signs, and it's full of all these little tiny signs that were just everywhere. And so those are those three photographers, and now Eric will dive in. Oh, and we have one more. See, this is our boy Swope again. And the neat thing about this picture, he not only got the the restaurant, but he got the eat in the car thing, too. He was a real interesting character, Swope. Excuse me, because he was almost completely self-taught, and it was just him recognizing a nifty picture when he saw it. You guys know Dorothy McGuire, the actress. That they were married, he and Dorothy, and he lived with James Stewart. They were great buds from the East Coast before they both came out here, uh, and he lived with James Stewart, and he did a book called Camera Over Hollywood in 1939 and if you guys are even vaguely interested in Hollywood during the golden studio age this is an astounding book because it's all backstage stuff at MGM which he got into because he was great friends with Jimmy Stewart so anyway I very highly recommend that my turn Your turn. Dive in. And the very
0: first photo I'm going to show you is in color, which means it's probably from that guy's collection. Uh, This is the on Wilshire Boulevard, uh, the backbone of Los Angeles, in my opinion. It's a a destination close to my heart. It's Wilshire Boulevard over by La Brea. Uh, The tower in the background still stands, uh, but what we're missing is that beautiful Richfield and the Simon Sandwich Shop and the Reed Examiner neon billboard. But as Tom was saying... Los Angeles was covered in neon. What we... I mean every business had to have a neon sign and we had quantity like crazy someone asked me recently did Los Angeles have a particular style of sign that we, you could only find here no we just had everything we had everything and in, 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 in then some. Uh, this mysterious photographer that pops up in Nathan's collection quite a bit took some fantastic uh, photographs of Los Angeles at that beautiful magic hour when the neon signs were glowing and the sky was gloaming and there was this beautiful blue but there there's a, a nice, dusky, deep, 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 dark blue for every building. It's, it's uh, very stylish. But I also imagine that Los Angeles couldn't be the same without the automobile. So we do try to include a lot of uh, automotive photographs in these pictures because you can't take a picture... of of a building without catching a car somewhere nearby. It is Los Angeles. Uh, Here we have a woman in the foreground. I'm in love with this woman because she has her hair in an updo, just (laughs) tied back putting it up to as she's driving around LA in her convertible. Uh, The location, we're not so sure of. We couldn't quite recognize the the foothills in the background, but uh, regardless, out of all of the McDonald's locations, I'm in love with this one. And it captures the color of these neon signs so beautifully. When we're dealing with black and white, uh, very, very often people just, and and it has happened to me before, people have said, so when did the signs become color? Uh Well, just because the photo's black and white doesn't mean that there's no color (laughs) in those signs. Uh, This is a photo that came out of the collection of the Huntington Library. It was one that I just saw and said, we must include this in the book. We, between us, have hundreds of pictures, but then there were the incandescent light bulb signs at the Huntington. We've got a few of those in the book. Some of them actually get close up And I'm going to do that in just a second because their photos are so beautifully scanned you can go into them in such great detail that you can pull out so many neon signs. In this particular image, we have a, a dentist shop on the right-hand side. That's demolished. It's now the arcade building, which is loft housing. Next to that is the Pantages, which was constructed in 1910. In 1910, they not only illuminated their 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 marquee, they illuminated their entire facade so that it was a visual destination for people at night. They all went to the Pantages to compete next door. There's the 1910 Clunes Broadway and next to that is Quinn's Superba. They don't have the same height as the Pantages but you might notice that there are vertical billboards on top of both of those theaters, giving their two-story facades extra luminous height, uh, For Clune's Broadway, it says the time, the place, Clune's Broadway. And then next door to that is Quinn's Superba. Quinn's Superba is captured in a beautiful oval, but they've also got uh, dragons on either side, breathing incandescent fire at each other. We don't have any of these incandescent signs here in this photo left, but if your eye goes a little further down, you can see the examiner vertical sign. And Eastern, East Lake Beer? East... Eastern beer, East Lake beer? I'm losing my mind. East Lake beer, thank you. And then beyond that, we have Ben Hur coffee. And way beyond that, way down the street, it's the luminous clock tower of the original Los Angeles Times building. The detail in these photographs is something that I have personally gotten lost in. And I've even saved the best detail for last in this photo. It's not necessarily all those great incandescent bulbs, there is a screen right to the left of that dentist sign. There's a movie screen to the left of the dentist sign. You'll notice that the sidewalk underneath the screen is empty, but the sidewalk on the opposite side is busy with people. That's because they're all watching an outdoor movie. <laughs> a movie that's being projected onto that, that, that screen. Uh, cinema was still a novelty. It wasn't even cinema at the time. It was a, a flicker. It was a movie. It was uh, a sideshow to vaudeville. But here they're showing a movie on the side of that dentist's office. One of my favorites. This one came out of Tom's collection. There are so many movie theaters in Los Angeles. You could put a book together, honestly, of just the exterior night shots of movie theaters. There are so many to choose from. But we fell in love with the Bundy. Partly broken. It's the undie.
1: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: the undie is adorable, and of course, it's uh, playing Lawrence Olivier, Shakespeare, Henry V, with only one car parked out front. Sorry, Lawrence. <laughs> but yes, neon burns out, and it creates these wonderful noirish uh, images. Whoever captured this, and it is an anonymous photo. Is that correct? Okay. It, whoever didn't sign the print, but. Uh, created a, a lovely streetscape of Los Angeles. It's it's noirish, yes, mysterious, with a light fog over the city, and spectacular because it captures something that's no longer there. Something as simple as this particular image. I've owned this photograph for about fifteen years, and it's always been in the back of my mind, I want to do something with this picture. There's even more to it. It's uh, an entire building with the lock bar over to the left-hand side. I've cropped it close in order to showcase a still life of Los Angeles, and there's so much being said in here, in signage and then some. Uh, to the right, we have King Richard being performed at the Biltmore, uh, Biltmore Theater. Biltmore oh. Uh, Biltmore Theatre, just behind the Biltmore Hotel. So they have a a, a poster showing for a theatrical production at the Biltmore Hotel. Uh, Next to that, to the right, is the backside of a stop sign. Doesn't seem very important, but believe it or not, that's one of a a very early stop sign that you're seeing the back of. It was one of LA's first illuminated uh, stop signs. It actually lit up from the inside and illuminated the word stop towards drivers. We had a few of those uh, that that were test on Wilshire Boulevard alone and this is one rare shot of a uh well, we don't have them anymore. I would say just a lost, a lost sign. So we have a, a testing stop sign, uh, a billboard for King Richard. Next to that, we have an Alka-Seltzer drugs that is not only Alka-Seltzer with neon, it's also backlit glass. That particular sign is important to me because to our knowledge, there's only one survivor in that style. Uh, and that one survivor is at the American Sign Museum in Cincinnati, Ohio. To have backlit glass on the street where people aren't throwing rocks at it is wonderful. But this is 1940. Uh, Just above that, old Mr. London dry gin with a neon clock wrapping around the corner. Uh, Below it, we have some windows. The windows have some point of purchase displays in the windows, plus, we have some more neon in the windows themselves. Lunch, dinners, and below that, films. Uh, We've also got the vertical drug sign above and horizontally, Metropolitan Pharmacy. All of that is neon. Every single bit of it is neon. In the daytime, you may not recognize it as neon, but what we are looking at is a still life of Los Angeles capturing the enormous amount of signage that every business had and not even mentioning the Wilshire Boulevard streetlight. That uh, is the intersection of Wilshire Boulevard and Wilshire Drive, the Wilshire streetlights. We still have a few of those remaining, but this is a nice close-up of the, yes, illuminated backlit glass signage that read Wilshire Boulevard on one side of the sign and Wilshire Drive on another. Before we had just plain old painted signs, we have just below that lantern, the called out backlit glass, Wilshire Boulevard, Wilshire Drive. That was how we announced our streets in teeny tiny backlit glass lettering attached to a street light. Uh, But still life of Los Angeles, it's something I fell in love with. We haven't really talked too much about figural signs and I, I really love a good figural. We have lost both of these neon signs, they are gone. The Museum of Neon Art recreated the Stan's car hop waitress, the one that's on the left. The Stan's car hop waitress, uh, she sure is perky, I'll say that. <laughs> She has beautifully uh, shaped high heel shoes, gorgeous legs, going up to very tiny, tiny shorts, a beautiful butt, and supporting it with the bare midriff. She's got her perky tatas pointing to a tray of sweets, uh, a sundae, and a milkshake. Her hat is so detailed, and even has a little S in her cap for stands. She is gone, but the Museum of Neon Art has made a recreation of her. Next to that is the recently discovered Jack's Jackburger. Jack's Jackburger is kind of bizarre to me. These are almost sisters down Sunset Boulevard. I think that Stan's came first and then the amoebic shape outlined by yellow incandescent bulbs uh, was copied by Jack's, which came just a few years later. They went a little bit more crazy with this because Stan's is all neon, but Jack's Jacks is that one combination. It's the, I call it the illuminated trinity of signage. It is backlit plastic, in this case in the shape of a Jack Burger. backlit plastic, incandescent light bulbs, and neon altogether. When sign companies were competing to say, look at me, look what we can do, and they made this. Of course, as much as I admire her and her high-heeled shoes and her little tiny apron, she has nothing covering her bazooms except... A giant gifted bow. There's nothing else beyond that. She's practically naked and cooking up a giant Jack Burger with her magic wand on Sunset Boulevard. This particular building that housed Jack's later became uh, Tower Records on Sunset. That's the location where this guy was found. Is that a George Mann shop? Yes. Guess where I got that from? George Mann. No. I got it from... uh, yes from her from his daughter we did call from several collections for this thankfully uh and con- to conclude one more fantastic colored shot as as uh, tom was saying eh, yeah where that come from as tom was saying we uh we really adore los angeles but but spent a good portion of the book focused on two streets in particular uh, Broadway in downtown Los Angeles is pretty damn impressive with all of its movie theaters and shopping, its giant shopping districts. But this one block, sorry, two block stretch of Vine between Hollywood and Sunset, we have spread after spread after spread because every business had an incredible neon sign. And every building that changed tenants got another neon sign. And they kept getting bigger and more ornate and more beautiful. Uh, and this one lovely building, KECA TV Channel 7, we've traced that down to like 1948, 49 or so. Uh, but that building shows up over and over and over again. It was a bowling alley to start. It became Tom Brenneman's nightclub. After that, it became a, uh, a theater for radio performances. Then it was television performances. And we'd really tried to capture it from its Early early days in the late twenties, all the way up to well 1965, where we conclude our book. But all of these businesses just blow my mind: Lockies, Will Wrights, all the way down to on the really far right-hand side, little tiny in red and blue. It's the Brown Derby rooftop sign. That Brown Derby rooftop sign was one constant on that street. It was there from 1929 to about 1986, and in spread after spread after spread of Vine Street it's always there just omnipresent that wonderful watchful neon hat and uh, that's one of our lone survivors if I can make a plug and I always do that neon hat is now at the Museum of Neon Art and it's currently on display so come on and visit the Museum of Neon Art in Glendale to take a peek at that omnipresent fantastic neon hat and I think with that we have one more (laughs) this one Yes, we have one more neon sign. Uh, Look, it's the Brown Derby that I just talked about. Isn't that great? Uh, We also have the Firefly off on the left-hand side. The Firefly is no longer with us, but some folks who were around in the late 80s, early 90s may still remember that wonderful, amazing Firefly cocktail lounge. Uh, It was akin to the Frolic Room, fantastic rooftop sign. Next to that, the Hammenager, the 530, the 530, A barber shop, a camera shop, all the way down to the Brown Derby itself. Every business in this photograph is trying to make their presence known, not just with a neon sign, but a neon sign that covers all of the facade except for the front window and front door. They're going as big as they possibly can to compete with their neighbor and be seen against the Brown Derby.
1: Didn't you find something interesting about the camera store?
0: The camera store? I've... Sa- well, I found several interesting things about these stores. Which were you thinking about, though?
1: Wasn't it Jerry Lewis that owned the thing?
0: No, I haven't heard that one. No, that's not me. Somebody no, somebody t- else told you oh. that. No, not me. I just but assumed. I, I love that idea. That... Uh, that yes, we have all these fantastic photos in the book, and the best way to see these photos in the book is to buy it and take it home.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they have several right over there. Yeah, so
0: <laughs> with that, we've reached the end, but I, I'd love to open it to questions. Does anybody have a question or a neon story they might want to share? With, yes? Where were most of them? Uh, were most of the companies that made the signs here in LA, or were they all over the country? Well, it's true. It, they were very, very localized. The, the, the companies that made these neon signs. Uh, There were chains of neon sign companies that stretched from uh, here to the East Coast. Some of the the largest ones were family-based, like Yesco, and then they would have an extension or a a chapter that was based in Southern California. Uh, But then there were also the mom-and-pop shops that just operated on their very, very own. For example, somebody that worked and apprenticed in this neon shop would eventually say, screw you, I'm out of here, I know everything I need to know about the business, and then go open their own. Uh, We see it happening time and time again, and a lot of these businesses may last for five years or several decades. Almost all of them are gone today, however. Uh, And sad to say, nobody really signs their neon signs. So we know that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people just in Southern California that made these neon signs, designed them, bent the glass, Uh, put pen to paper and drew them up for execution, but they never signed their work. If we're lucky, we might have a company name on a sign. Uh, A company name like Yesco or Xeon Neon, or the list goes on. But we have no idea the names of the people that made them, and that's one thing I really wish we had. Lots of companies, very few signatures. Question in the back?
1: have any idea why the circus liquor sign survived and still continues to exist?
0: The circus liquor out in the San Fernando Valley? Well, it's it's hard to say. The question is, why does that particular neon sign survive? The giant scary clown in neon and plastic. Uh, I can't tell you why he survives, why why one business will survive over another, but I, I think I can just conjecture generally that if the business owns the land and that mom and pop shop is not renting, generally it'll last a little bit longer than if they were renting. Uh, Pan's Coffee Shop is a great example. They have an amazing sign, neon plastic, a beautiful building in a googie style. They're still in operation because the mom and pop that own that coffee shop also own the land. They're not having to deal with hiked up rents. It's all profit for them at this point because they own it. It's Possible that that particular business is still in operation because they have a fantastic landmark sign and maybe they also own the land and nobody's bought them out. I'm ever so glad when I do see these giant neon signs and when I do travel the country, I will pull over for a good neon sign, photograph it, then go inside and say, I'm stopping my car and giving you money for anything you are selling mm-hmm. because I like that neon sign out front. And that's how we keep these businesses open. So go buy some booze
1: (laughs) from that particular liquor store. And if you find yourself in Sacramento for some reason, there is a a mom and pop ice cream store that's been owned by the same family since the end of World War II. And they have a neon sign on the front where the ice cream guy throws the neon and there's five things of the ice cream going through and then he catches it in a cone. Uh And... I went in and asked them, you know, how is it you have this sign? Because the families own the thing all the time, and they are fanatic, devoted to this sign, and they have a neon guy that comes and fixes it whenever anything goes wrong. Not some electrician; they have a guy that knows what he's doing, and that sign is glorious. In fact, Sacramento's full of them. They have an old record store with somebody doing the Charleston on the front of the thing. The original Tower Records. Oh yeah, 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 go figure. Yes, question. Um, you end your book of nineteen sixty-five. I
0: know that neon hit a decline. Is there one reason that neon really went into decline, or is it multiple reasons? What what contributed to their decline? I can give a couple reasons. One of them, one of the reasons, is oversaturation. We had so many businesses putting so many signs on their business—not just a sign over the door, but they had a sign in the window, they had a sign hanging over the sidewalk, they had to have a sign on their roof. It was a vi- visual cluster it was a cacophony it became too too awful for for some drivers uh, that's when city beautiful movement started to take place in the 1960s into the 70s and then once we reached the 80s particular cities like Burbank or Glendale or Santa Monica started enacting sign ordinances in order to to say No more grandfathering. All your signage has to go. And they went towards that unified look. Uh, We see that still happening today over in the city of Anaheim around the Disneyland Resort. It was Disney that told Anaheim, no more of these mom and pop shops. We want unified. And so it turns out tombstones type signs for every single business. They all look alike advertising different things, but they go for that uniformity. Uh, That's one reason why we stopped seeing great neon after the 1960s. The other reason, plastic. Backlit plastic was far cheaper than neon. One of the things that we put down in the book was that incandescent light bulbs were prominent. We see incandescent light bulbs everywhere. Thomas Edison gave us the incandescent light bulbs. Forty years later, we have neon. All those incandescent light bulb signs were considered passe, and neon was the big new thing. Then coincidentally, 40 years after neon came around, plastic was on the on the field. And plastic was cheap. You didn't need to talent to make a plastic sign. And plastic wound up taking over the world of neon. So once we get past 1965, it's a land of plastic. And even though there are some fantastic plastic signs out there, I love that, fantastic (laughs) plastic. Uh, That's a different book entirely. And I've actually got a friend diving into uh, UC Berkeley. There's a sign archive in UC Berkeley that I am going to have to go and mine because it's 1960s Los Angeles
1: plastic signage. I know. See another book? Maybe? Maybe. (laughs) and also to back up what Eric just said if you ever go down Pulvet Boulevard there in Culver City there's a wonderful place called the Cinema Bar and they have live music and all that and they when the guy bought it he wanted to re- light the neon sign which is a big thing that comes over the street a vertical and so the city said that was fine because again grandfathered in the sign had always been there he just wanted to make it go again but he also wanted to put in the neon piping that used to be on the front of the building they said no can't do that so because he would have had to replace it because that had all been torn down somewhere in the past so they did let him relight the sign they would let him put on more stuff Hmm
0: interesting. Another question, yeah.
1: Yeah, maybe you can help me remember something. Um, when I was in architecture school back in the uh, mid 70s, a long time ago, um, I did a research project. I was reading works by Rainer Bannon and Charles Jenks and a bunch of architectural historians, and I ended up doing a project on electrographic architecture, which usually translates as neon, or animated neon. And I uh, visited quite a few sites around uh, downtown LA, places you mentioned, uh, San Dino Valley, and one that sticks with me, and I don't have to show any longer, um, was uh, it was a motel was in Sherman Oaks on Ventura Boulevard, and if memory serves me, it was something like Stevens. Steels. Steels.
0: I know that. It was Steele's Steel's Motel. Uh, Steele's Motel was one of the greatest motel signs in, in the San Fernando Valley. And guess what? It's in the collection of the Museum of Neon Art. <laughs> uh, that particular sign is gigantic, and it's on display at Universal City Walk. The Museum of Neon Art has a giant collection of signage up at Universal City Walk. You walk around up there, and you look at all the shops, and you go, eh, but then you look up and there's fantastic neon. It really is historic neon, and Steele's is amazing. To to give you a visual of what Steels was, uh, it was Steeles with a possessive apostrophe, motel vertically coming down. It was Steels in single tube lettering. The motel was double tube lettering, making it just a little bit brighter. Uh, jumping off of that steel's was a horizontal diver in a yellow bathing suit, yellow cap. She dove in four-part animation: one jackknife, tummy tuck, splash down in a wavy neon pool with a neon palm tree off to the side. Below that was a incandescent light bulb proto-googie arrow. That pointed towards the motel, and it said in neon sorry, no vacancy. it's an amazing neon sign Uh, and I'm ever so glad that the Museum of Neon Art was able to save that one there were people that were making an offering to the motel owner back in the 80's when the sign was coming down saying I have money I'll buy it from you and the guy was like nope made a deal with the Museum of Neon Art it's going to them and it's still on display in the public eye thankfully to this day I'm so glad I could answer that (laughs) in such great detail (laughs) Ah. another question Yes. Was, was LA some
1: kind of fried chicken mecca? Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: No. It's totally, totally true. You are so spot on, correct. It wasn't just Mrs. Knotts out in Buena Park selling fried chicken. It was just this wonderful, easy, greasy thing that anybody could sell, and make. But uh, yeah, fried chicken was just prominent you could go to like any theme restaurant in los angeles and there would be a neon sign out front advertising and we sell fried chicken something tropical perhaps with monkeys and palm trees and they sold fried chicken you could go to a jail themed restaurant dine in a jail cell with waiters in black and white stripes and they said sold fried chicken <laughs> los angeles was fried chicken kingdom and I, I don't know where it went but we only have to my knowledge mrs knots and that's about it but that's a different book
1: gus is, gus is on crenshaw.
0: which gus is on crenshaw how long have they been serving it Oh. Uh,
1: <laughs> Roscos. We've
0: got Roscoe's, It's true. I had another question somewhere in the back. Yeah. So I was just, I'm curious if you were um, familiar with the Neon Museum in Las Vegas. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is uh, I think it opened
1: about two years ago. Yeah. You know, the
0: original back in the day. Oh yeah. Uh huh. And- the question is about the the Vegas Museum in in uh. The Vegas Neon Museum celebrating Southern Nevada. Uh, Yeah, I do know that museum. I've been there many a time. I want to build a closer relationship between the Museum of Neon Art and their museum. I would love to have that happen, and I've got a few friends and contacts to make it happen. Uh, Long story short, the Museum of Neon Art was founded in 1981 and we celebrate, I say we because I've been with them for 17 years, uh, the Museum of Neon Art celebrates neon signage and modern neon electrical artwork. We're a very strange coin to have vintage signage, the birth of neon, and modern electrical artwork where neon, what a neon evolved into. Put it together, it's the Museum of Neon Art. In all those years that we've been around, more neon museums have popped up. The Vegas Museum is one. They celebrate Southern Nevada. The American Sign Museum in Cincinnati, Ohio, they're digging into all sorts of American signage, anything that's signage. They even have a barn side that says, like, owl cigars in part of their collection. Uh, but not just that. There's a neon museum that opened up in Germany, in Berlin, I think, and another one that's opened up in Poland, celebrating Cold War neon signage from Poland. Uh, we, we started it. <laughs> no, I take that back. It's it's just, I think people are now paying attention to neon and realizing that there is a, an aesthetic, a, a technical and a cultural value to neon signs. And I'm glad that the Museum of Neon Art is here in Los Angeles saving what we can. So is anybody
1: still making it or
0: using it? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I was just asked today, somebody sent me an email today saying... Um, they want to make a neon sign at... What's the name of that company? I can't remember. Big famous name company wants to make some neon signs. I'm like, well, you could look in the yellow pages or contact me. And I gave them a few mom and pop neon shops that uh, could definitely use the corporate work. Yeah, neon is still being made and still being produced. It's actually really a green technology more so than LEDs. Don't buy an LED sign. They're lying to you. Neon signs will last forever if you keep them maintained. I'm uh, actually leaning towards Sarno's Pizza de Napoli when I say that. I want that neon sign to be more maintained than it is. It's just kind of sitting over there on top of that Vermont restaurant. And, uh, well, it's one that I'm watchful over. So help me watch over that one, please. Yeah.
1: Um, KECA is Earl C. Anthony. So Earl C. Anthony is in the book about neon. But tell us the story about Earl C. Anthony. Well, Earl C. Anthony was a very interesting character. He had all kinds of businesses, including car dealerships. He had his own airline that he started. Uh, He had a radio um, entity that he owned. He owned all kinds of stuff. And he was a booster deluxe. And the boosters were the guys that were selling Los Angeles. There's not a reason in the world, especially a 19th century reason, why Los Angeles should have ever been more than an agricultural county seat, which is what it was. There was no harbor, there was no navigable river, There was no industry, there was no huge deposits of coal to be exploited, there was nothing, absolutely zero. But there was the biggest chamber of commerce in the entire United States, and they sold the place like a box of cereal. Gee, where can I read more about this, you're asking? There's a wonderful book called Paradise Promoted, also by good old Angel City, that is the story of this, the story of the selling of Los Angeles, the desperate campaign to get people moved out here. And is probably the single most successful sales campaign in the entire history of the world. Because God knows if you ever try and drive everywhere, tons of people have moved out here. Well, Earl C. Anthony was very much a part of all this. And he apparently really did go to Paris in 1923 and really did see these wonderful neon signs that were made by Claude Neon the guy that really developed it, George Claude. And supposedly, he saw them, fell in love with them. He said, this belongs in L.A. And he brought the neon sign back with him, a Packard neon sign, put it up on his Packard dealership, and it stopped traffic. And people from all over Southern California were coming to admire the sign, and people were knocked out, fainting on the streets practically. And that was in virtually every book about neon. It was in every website about neon. The story of Earl C. Anthony bringing the neon to America. It is well, a great story. Oh, it's a marvelous story. And it fits. This is where neon should have started in America. Certainly, uh, Hollywood was here. Well, it's just all totally fabricated. And sometimes these boosters would would exaggerate just slightly about the glories of Southern California. So, And he was one of them. And Lydia DeLazer, who is a, or Didia DeLazer, who is on the board, right, of the Museum of Neon Art, she's writing a book currently. She's at uh, Cal State Fullerton, and she's writing a book about the history of neon in America. And as a true academic, she heard this story, everybody heard this story, so she went to prove it. Well, she looked all through the newspapers from that era. There was no mention of huge traffic jams, people fainting in the streets, people just amazed and astounded by the sign. There was nothing. So she thought, huh, maybe they didn't cover it. So she went to the marvelous um, aerial... View collection, photograph collection over at UCLA and she assiduously looked through the things to where the neon sign was supposed to be on Grand. It wasn't there. It didn't, she didn't find a neon sign until 1925 and by that time there were several signs scattered about the state, certainly in New York uh, already. So the story was just completely made up and she proved it. And so we have lost our place (laughs) as the founding city of Neon. And the one great thing that we do add, though, to the history of Neon are these endless commercial strips. There was no other place in the country that had anything like that. No place. With that, thank thank you.
0: Thank you, Tom. Thank you.